Hello everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I'm here with some lovely ladies on a panel. They all work for Scuba Analytics and have a lot of insights to share with you about their careers and their expertise with data. You'll hear more about Scuba Analytics, who's kindly sponsored this content we're about to enjoy later. But for now, I would love to introduce Erica Dickinson, Touche Kasichi, and Kelsey Sampson, who will tell you a little bit more about their roles at Scuba. And from there, we'll go on to discuss the rest. I'm so happy to have the three of you here. I've been really looking forward to talking to you about not only silos at your and your clients' organizations, but also your career stories as fellow women in tech. My Data Femme audience loves hearing about powerful women like you who are making it in the data world. So with that, um, I'd love to get everybody's introduction. Just introduce yourself and your role at Scuba Analytics and then how you got involved in data science. That's always very interesting for me to hear. My name is Tuche. And uh, I have been at Scuba Analytics for almost nine months. And um, before this, I was working at a big software company uh, for about uh, five years, five and a half years. And um, I have been working with data almost my entire professional career. But the turning point for me was that um, I was working with a lot of data not actually realizing so much during my doctorate degree and i applied for an internship at a big software company um, so basically they just called me up for an interview and i was interviewing for a technical support internship position but somehow i found myself basically being interviewed for a data scientist um, internship position and when I got to talk with my prospective manager during that talk, he actually told me that all the things that I had been telling him so far about my career was leading me up to data science. Only the part that I had been working so far was at a smaller scale data, but without realizing I had been actually working with some big scale data as well. So they valued my experience, even working with some sets of data to actually work with bigger data at that company. Um, so I was there for about nine months and I just really loved it. I loved working with data almost 
every day. And that was the happiest that I have been um, my entire life. Um, so this basically just like carried on with the rest of my professional career. Although I took different roles in uh, different companies, I had almost a relation anytime with some part of data. Either I was in a project or I was offering to help someone. And that led me to my role basically at Scuba Analytics as a product manager. Uh, my day-to-day -day job basically includes working with the engineering team to prioritize their work, especially, and also working on uh, setting up the pathway to better integrate um, some tools that we're working with uh, with Scuba. I love that you mentioned when you realize the size of your data in relation to other data sets, that is something that I feel like we all experience going from job to job, or in my case, from school to job. It's really interesting and we can come back to that. Kelsey, do you wanna go next? Sure. So I have not been in data science nearly as long as Touche. Um, so I have been at Scuba Analytics for, just over two years now. Um, I started in the early pandemic uh, phase. Um, and I actually came from a cybersecurity software customer service background. Um, so I run the customer success department or teams uh, at Suba Analytics. Um, I'm the senior director of customer success. I have been in customer support and customer service for and customer success basically my entire career. Um, and it wasn't until I got a message from um, a recruiter at then in Toronto, what's now Scuba Analytics, um, asking if I was interested in joining the technical account management team um, that I kind of really learned about data science and data analytics. Um, data has always been something that really interested me. I'm very mathematical and I'm uh, very much a logic and math brain kind of person. Um, but I never really got the chance to be involved in data analytics or data science until I was here. And I really, you know, dove in and developed my knowledge and understanding just purely by learning the product. Um, I, I always hate being the new person at any new job. So I found myself basically absorbing all of the information we had internally and externally. Um, and growing my role here through that knowledge. I think I have the least technical role of the three of us um, here at Scuba because I work directly with our customers. But I, I don't want to say I have the, the broadest job, but I'm, it might be that I have the broadest job just because I do need to know basically all of the product from the back end to the front end, as well as all of the data that the customers are sending so that when they send us a question and say, you know, why is my data wrong? <laughs> why is this query wrong? I can involve the right teams um, and and get their, their questions solved. I think having a bird's eye view is underrated sometimes. I, I love that I have a technical background in data science, but I really value my position as being able to look at the whole industry and kind of piece things together and have a consolidated opinion. So I definitely think that has a lot of value. And I think that technical folks also really benefit from being able to think outside their own box. 
Erica, you want to go ahead? Yeah. Um. So I have been with Scuba for the shortest period of time of the three of us. I've been here for th- three mm, months now, three or four months now. And yeah, I think I was interested in the role because I have been growing more and more interested in the way that we as a society, I think, um, are collecting data and like how we are analyzing and thinking about that data and joining this from a QA role, I think has been like a very, you know, interesting way to be involved in it because at a previous job, I was working for a university and that is all about like maintaining data and collecting data, like very sensitive and valuable data that, you know, like shapes people's lives, like their grades and, you know, their um, personal information. You know, it's very important that we like keep this information and um, it's it stays accurate. So I think I have been like, you know, working with sensitive data for a long time. So it was very interesting, the transition from sensitive data to sensitive data and also like a larger amount of data. And it's been a very interesting, you know, transition from like, not like a smaller subset of data to like a very, very big amount of data about a lot of people. I have also been like trying to, you know, understand the way that we perform data science and like how all of this works from the other side of the the walls, you know? So like we provide a tool that allows people to understand their data without having to know data science. And I guess I've been like curious about what that actual data science is and like how that works. Um, So I recently like took some courses about like how people do this without our platform. Um, And that was really eye opening, like the amount of technical expertise that goes into it and how people, how the data can be transformed in like any number of ways using these imaging models and like data frames. So yeah, I guess like uh, my experience with data science has mostly been since I've started here, um, but it's definitely grown since then. I love that you and Tuche both mentioned um, the difference between working with big and small data sets. So before we get into, I guess, the meat of our discussion around the structure of organizations, I'd love to hear from both of you, I guess, some differences between how you approach working with those different sizes of data. Basically, I guess it's like whether it's big or small data, the first thing that I usually try to do, like, is there is there any way, even though if it's like big data, is there any way for me to basically just, I call, I call it as like poking at it? Is there any way for me to understand what it is um, like compromise of like what are the number of columns, number of rows, basic information, and then um, what what is the basically like the the summary of that data? How many rows are actually in that are full? Is there any completely like empty columns? Um, is there any way that I can just kind of consolidate the data somehow? then I almost like if if I can just get some small information out of the data, then I can just 
prepare my attack plan. First things first, like, of course, for example, for small data, if there's any possibility, I try to like open up that data document to see, like visually see if there's any um, like parts of the data that I can just work with, first of all. If that is a big data document, then most of the time, the things that I'm explaining right now to do that I have to do like programmatically and also it depends on the tools that I have in hand like for example if I'm going to kind of do those um, like calculations or do those pre-processing with a uh, scuba then I have like another um, like set of knowledge or like set, set of um, information that I need in my mind. If I'm going to do it with like a programmatic language, then I maybe need to like go check and refresh my memory on how I'm going to do it. Once I get like an understanding of how I can work with it, I basically prepare myself like a plan of attack, um, like do this. And, and then if that doesn't work, like do that. And I try to like consolidate that data as much as possible. And then I basically just, I might be doing it like the opposite way. Then I just look at the basically like column names, if I can make any sense of the actual column names in the data, or if I see like if there's any data sheet that actually explains me what the column names of the data are. I think the ways um, in which they are similar are, you know, are, um, are like what first comes to mind. But I think the biggest difference, like what Tuche was saying, is just like the processing power required behind accessing them. Um, so, you know, I think when you're working with like a smaller set of data, usually you're more interested in like the minute details of like one user's journey. Whereas when you're working with like a big set of data, you want to know what everyone does, right? You're looking at like a much bigger picture and when you're working with like a big set of data, you're like, how is everyone dealing with our customer support team? How is everyone dealing with like the, you know, user accessing this like product view page and like how, what's their journey like from that page to like the point at which they buy something or the point at which they like install an application um, in this other application that we, you know, sell to them. And then I think another thing with like the, that is like that goes along with processing power when you're working with larger sets of data is like the speed of access if you're trying to access like one thing in like a sea of other things how i guess you do that can can become an issue i don't know however long you know an institution's been in, in operation and you're trying to access you know one student's information how you look for that can be kind of like labor intensive um but it can also be the same thing when you're trying to you know create doing like some kind of data modeling so i want to turn the spotlight on the wonderful company that these brilliant ladies work for and that's scuba analytics the sponsor of this data fem panel the good news I have for you as a listener is that you could also work just like these wonderful women for SCUBA. One of the coolest things about SCUBA is that they have the fun day-to-day -day vibe of an emerging startup, but they're also bringing a mature product to market 
that is performing at scale and adding value with interesting use cases. So they're in a great position to build on this momentum. And because of that, they have a lot of immediate needs for new talent in specifically software engineering and product management. I will now briefly go through the jobs that Scuba sent me for you listeners, but know that you can find all of these individual job postings and the link to all the available jobs in the show notes. I encourage you to go there and even read along as I go through the descriptions. For engineering, Scuba's front-end teams are building what's shaping up to be one of the slickest data interrogation and visualization systems out there and would like to hire an engineer who is strong in React and similar technologies that underpin the web. They also have a need for an engineer on the back end who brings considerable depth in Python with distributed systems at the enterprise level. So that describes a lot of you. They also have a need for a product manager, and this product manager would have a lot of influence in driving the effort to shape Scuba's integration capabilities. I have had a wonderful, wonderful experience working with Scuba, and so I would highly recommend you check out, again in the show notes, all of these opportunities. They are a very competitive remote first company. They are ranked high in employee happiness on Comparably, and they are upending the continuous intelligence and behavioral analytics landscape. So the timing is great to apply. Now, back to our show. You know, when it comes to small versus big data sets, I feel like both offer advantages from a learning perspective. Like obviously working with big data, you get to, I guess, see how multiple data points kind of converge and it's just easier to uh, test different analytical strategies. But I think like with the smaller data sets, it becomes a real challenge with cleaning and making sure, you know, do I have enough data? And it becomes more of a problem solving thing. And I think that's important for analysts to go through. I feel like with the small data sets, um, that's what really introduced me to like how incomplete data can be and like how to deal with that problem. Um, often it's collect more data. So there's that. I do think that every data set offers its unique opportunities to learn and there's so much data out there. So with that, I would love to move on to the bulk of our discussion, which involves inter-organization collaboration. I first want to ask just from your experience, you know, client facing and, you know, interacting with a bunch of organizations, what are some benefits and challenges you find that companies experience a lot while interacting between their departments? I mean, what I can say is probably my interaction with, um, companies that I've worked before because I was basically my interaction with the customer at Scuba was a little bit more limited. Um, but if I actually just 
comment on the things that I have seen with like customer interactions or recordings or um, some of the things that I have listened and read within the company, basically biggest challenge that I realized the data collection style for different departments, even within the same company are very different. They might be very disconnected from each other. Like if I actually just kind of bring almost back the conversation to the scuba space, let's say for, for any data to be loaded in and like looked into scuba, scuba needs a timestamp. And um, even within the same company, for example, the like the customer experience team or like the call team is recording um, their data with like a timestamp or like another department, for example, like online department or like web department is just collecting data just um, without without the timestamps or just, they're just recording basically based on uh, whatever user interaction is just happening, but not collecting on timestamps. And we are kind of like offering scuba over there as like a... Um, as a solution for different departments, but then there comes a problem where one department can actually easily use and the other department cannot. That is one of the things basically like I have seen. And also the data data collection rates or the data amount from the diff from different departments is um, just varies from department to department and it kind of becomes a problem whether you're going to like combine that data, that data silo to like use together or like you have to keep it separate and like treat them completely separate. And I think this also kind of leads to your question as like um, also um, this is basically like one of the challenges of like how are you going to work with like small data and then the big data. The biggest challenge I've seen, especially with large companies, lar like massive enterprise companies that have you know, a data and a data engineering department and a data science department and a product management department, and everyone is in these little silos. The biggest disconnect happens when they are silos. So if the people developing the data or collecting the data, if the people developing the application that collects the data are different and separated from the people that are collecting the data are separated and different from the people that are using the data, We've run into a lot of issues. And by we, I mean anyone working with any of those groups. It's just as important for the product managers. If they, if we say they're the, that the PMs are the ones using the data and trying to do analytics on that data, it's just as important for them to understand the, the underlying whatever it is that goes into that data as it is for the people creating and collecting that data um, it's just as important for them to understand what the outcome is or what the goals are. Um, when we have a lot of disconnect or when you see a lot of disconnect between those two groups, it takes a lot longer <laughs> for people to say, okay, well, if I, a PM, want to see how many people are clicking on this, this part of my website or going from this page to this page or going from for example, like a really simple um, conversion for shopping. Like if, if I want to see how many people go from our homepage to adding to cart to purchasing, and we're not collecting any of the, any of those pieces or one of those pieces, it becomes a lot 
more tricky or more difficult to to really get that conversion and have those full analytics. So on the engineering side, um, if they don't know what their what the analytics team is trying to accomplish, then they're just going to say, "Well, I think I know. <laughs> I think I know what I need, or I will do what I think is best and track it the way I think is best and name the fields the way that makes sense to me." And then we get all of this data and the people that are trying to run queries in Scuba or in other tools say, well, I actually don't know what, e- what fields I even want to use. I don't know what fields map to what I'm looking for. Um, and there's this huge, like I said, there's this huge disconnect between the two silos, for lack of a better word, um, the bigger the company is. It's not as much the case in a company our size because we're fairly small. So, you know, I... I talk to TJ or Erica, or, you know, if there's data that needs to be collected internally, then I or anyone on my team can talk to the people actually producing that data. You know, we do that all the time here at Scuba. We have conversations when we're developing our product with the customer facing team. Um, But larger companies where that isn't the case, it becomes a lot more difficult to have that overlap and have that understanding on both sides. Um, I think that the more that someone in data on the engineering side can become familiar with, or at least aware of what the intended goal is, um, the more successful they'll be. I think from like an internal engineering standpoint, though, it's, you know, kind of the same story, Um, just encouraging like the developers when they are like trying to develop test cases and especially from like a QA team standpoint, the importance of actually understanding the data that we are using for testing is like incredibly crucial to like making a product that analyzes other data well. Because if we don't understand what we're trying to visualize and how we're trying to help other people do that thing, it's going to be much more effective, right? If we know how the product is going to be used and like we know like what types of things people are trying to do and we are like we have data that we understand so we can like understand how we can you know maybe fill in some of those gaps or how we can like improve what we do with the product to make other people's data more useful for them all great responses oftentimes silos develop because people are such in a hurry to get their own individual jobs done that they don't kind of think about the big picture. But I guess that race for time ends up wasting time in the long run when you realize that you didn't communicate enough. So I guess, how do you go about convincing teams that they need to do that communication from the get go? And, you know, convincing them to stop and, you know, smell the roses and take a look around because that can be hard to convince people to do. The silos developed in the first place because people were, were in a hurry looking for the the short-term wins, especially in, on an individual contributor level. The more that people are just focused on getting, you know, this, this sprint done or this task done or getting the product out, um, getting the build out, whatever it is, the more they're focused on just that and don't have a higher level or a, a bird's eye view of what the end goal is or what the long-term solution is or what, what, what the long, long-term goal is, um, the more likely they are to just 
silo themselves off. Um, and that that can be also from a top down, you know, a management level as well is that the, if managers, again, especially in larger companies where there's a lot more managers um, or a lot more levels of management, if they are purely focusing on or mostly focusing on just getting the next thing out the door, then there's going to be less of that cross collaboration because just everyone just wants to do their job and be done with it and get to the next thing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, there is always, uh, especially when there's customers involved, there's always a sense of urgency that is needed. But it is also really important, as we talked about, to to say, you know, what is the long-term goal? Yes, I can do this thing. I can develop this piece uh, of product that will provide this piece of data. I can do that really quickly and send three fields that, you know, may not have a lot of actual useful information in them, but it'll get it out the door tomorrow, or I can take a couple of extra days or in some cases, weeks um, or months and actually flush out the, that product and that's that data so that the people who are looking at it down the line, my product manager friends or my customer success friends or whoever, the data analysts, whatever you're calling that group of people, um, so that in three months, when we've got a bunch of data, it's actually useful. And having those conversations with people often gets overlooked. And often, from what I've seen, doesn't really happen until it's after the fact. The more that people can focus on finding that sweet spot of collaboration, the more you can collaborate between everyone and not just say, get it out the door tomorrow, no matter what. But it is really important to take those silos and kind of maybe break down half the walls so that people can, you know, shout over the half wall and say, hey, is this this new thing that I'm planning to put into production? Is this going to be useful for you, the person that has to use the data? And that person can say yes or no, or maybe ask some more questions. I think the biggest thing for me is always in everything that I do is communication, making sure that everyone understands what the goal is so that they can all get on the same page. I think you're right on point, Kelsey, about that. I actually have a funny story to share. Like in my, in, in the previous job, I just kind of mentioned where it just got me to the big data. So as a technical support department, we were basically just doing machine learning analysis in the technical support department to automatically assign the tickets, upcoming future tickets to the people who resolve tickets that were in the same area before. But um, one of the problems, I mean, not really a problem, but like one of the things that actually got my attention was that for an amount of time that I would consider how many tickets were created, I was thinking that it was a little bit lower than the amount that I would expect to happen, especially when I see the daily flow of the data to technical support department. Uh, at that time, we were going to the offices and one day I saw, I actually overheard a customer um, support representative talking to a customer on the phone about a technical issue or almost could be counted as like the technical issue um, and somehow found like a gem of data, maybe even 10% of the technical support data in customer services buckets. And that was a that was a huge amount at that time because like I'm trying to 
even gather some more samples of data and that somehow got lost because of data silos, even with the departments that are just so close to each other. Yeah, sometimes the data is someplace that you don't expect it to be. Um, how do you, I guess you kind of answered this a little bit, but how do you go about making sure that this necessary communication happens before hand and as part of the flow so that people don't need to be reminded who to reach out to or just to reach out, period. Because I'm in management, I have the ability to, I don't want to say force people to talk to each other, but I do have the ability to help make sure that communication happens. Something that we do at Scuba um, is having a recurring touch point, whether that's across you know, different teams that report to me or different teams that report to our, you know, VP of engineering, CTO, any of those people, like making sure that product and in our case, engineering and customer success, making sure that there's a recurring touch point where we can all talk to each other. In our case, it's either weekly or biweekly. In some cases, there are daily standups um, for smaller like tasks as opposed to larger concepts. Um, I hate to be the person that is recommending more meetings because I don't think anyone really wants more meetings in their life, myself included. But having that recurring or standing touch point on the calendar to make sure that people are, you know, even though we're not meeting in person, making sure that we're looking at each other's faces or Zoom profile pictures or whatever, and saying, this is the time when you should express concerns or talk about what we're doing. And, um, and have open dialogues. And then as people in leadership or people running those meetings or whoever is in charge at that particular time, making sure that we are creating an encouraging environment for those open dialogues. So not shutting down conversations when, when people ask maybe silly questions about something or need more clarification on what this thing does, making sure that no one is really shutting down other people for asking what may seem like silly questions helps develop that more open communication. And the more that I found, the more that you encourage people to use that time that has been set aside to talk to each other, the more comfortable they become asking questions that may be outside of their comfort zone. And the more that people become comfortable asking uncomfortable questions, the more you find collaboration. You know, I found sometimes I or someone on my team will ask a question during one of our recurring like product or engineering syncs with the like the field team, so to speak. One of us will ask a question and um, it'll be something that engineering had hadn't even thought of because they're not as close to the what the customer does as we are and vice versa. You know, sometimes I got a message from our, our head of product the other day in um, an internal ticket and was was asking like, do people even use this feature? And I was like, I have no, I had no idea this even existed. And because we all work so closely together all the time, it's a lot easier for me to openly and honestly say, I don't know than it would be if we weren't having those recurring touch points. All that to say, I think having recurring touch points that are kind of force people to at least look at each other so that, you know, in a virtual setting, and then as much as everyone can encourage the open communication that naturally leads to really good conversations. I do, do agree with Kelsey that like having these standing meetings is important. 
But I also think that like one of the ways to like cut down on meetings or to like make sure that that communication is happening is like through like the use of like having an agenda for meetings. Because I think if you know like what this meeting is supposed to be about, it can you can really like get to like the heart of things without like just rambling, you know? So like if I have a one-on-one with Kelsey, like I throughout the week will encounter issues, right? And I don't want to have to keep all of those in my brain and I don't want to like forget to bring them up with Kelsey. So like if we have an agenda, then I can like, I know where to put this information. Like everything I think should have a home, right? Uh, Including like my thoughts that I want to share with someone. And additionally, like, I don't expect Kelsey to remember all of this forever. So if we have those meeting notes, then she can go back and reference them and say like, I addressed this issue or we're looking into it or something. I guess since I work for myself and only with myself, I I really have to make notes for myself to be able to follow. Um, but sometimes that works better than others. Why do you think silos developed in the first place? When any strategy develops, I would hope that it developed out of necessity with growth in mind. And so there has to be some benefit to why we ended up segmented in the first place. How can we hang on to those original intentions while not going overboard and isolating everybody? I like to think that some of these silos developed because there needs to be an owner for some, for each, for every task or project. If there's no owner, then eventually people just don't do it because they don't know who they're supposed to look to for decisions. That's partly why some of these silos developed is because people were just so focused on going to the owner of that task or project or what have you. I mean, they want to make sure they're doing the right thing and making sure they're they're doing their job well and doing the thing to the best of their abilities. And I think that that is really important to hold on to. The piece of making sure that everything has an owner or a, a, a person to be in charge of the thing to make sure it gets done, that doesn't require silos. It just requires having people assigned to tasks or owning the project or owning the sprint or whatever it is. It's super important that, you know, Erica, who's doing QA, still talks to me, the person that's talking to the customers, because Erica is doesn't have time to talk to the customers. That's not her job. <laughs> that's my job. But if Erica tries to do her job in a silo or the QA team tries to do their job in a silo, then maybe she can build these really robust test cases. And maybe she can test a lot of stuff that, that gets really deep into the product functionality and capabilities. And maybe that allows her and her team to do things really quickly. Uh, maybe they just you know, go down their rabbit holes and they get their test cases out and it takes them two or three days versus weeks to try and collaborate or communicate with me and my team and Touche and everyone. But it's not necessarily going to be the best outcome. I think you like hit it on the head there, though. I think it is just like the need for speed, because if, you know, I do spend all day talking to the customer support team like I can't I'm spending less time focused on like development and making sure that we are like testing all of the things that need to be tested in the product so like if I only talk to developers then I'm like more focused on 
developing, you know, better test cases and making sure that like things are working and stress testing and load testing and all of these ways in which we can ensure the product is robust. So I think it was like, you know, what you're getting at, like best intentions um, for everyone to like work more efficiently. I do honestly agree with the idea that we've kind of like lost some of the communication, you know, that is required of us interdepartmentally. I obviously develop better test cases when I, when I talk to Kelsey and I understand what pain points people have. So understanding, you know, cause a part of like doing good testing and doing QA isn't just like making sure that it works. It's also making sure that it makes sense in how it works. Thank you for explaining that. I want to ask you, I guess, how this um, silo situation was affected, if at all, by the pandemic, um, either in ways that you've noticed at SCUBA or with your clients. And, you know, on a broader level, if you want to share how your own role was affected in terms of communication and what you learned, that would be fine, too. So I'm actually going to talk about my experience within like a few years, which uh, spends my time at a big software company versus also at Scuba. So one of the things that I, uh, by the way, in in previous life, actually in my previous position, I was working um, as a training engineer in um, the software company. But one of the things that we were doing is basically kind of conducting our plans or basically like our pain points and anything that will we will actually build for the customers by using the previous data like for example training usage or how much time they have spent in a training or how much time they have spent in a software that is related to this training so one of the things that i realized that we were by the way, in uh, my previous company, we were all coming into the office like five days a week. So when you hit a problem, especially with the data, or you just kind of realize that the data misplaced or like it, its source has changed or another team took over, it's basically just easy as like a phone call to like call the person in another department trying to like figure out where to trace that data. Uh, with pandemic, of course, like our lives has changed and um a lot of people were also basically just almost trying to make through the day. So it was really hard to trace back some of the data that I knew that has been there and not there anymore. Or maybe like the amount of data has been just kind of like reduced or like that data has been siloed into different departments. Now you have to go into like different sources. This actually happened to me at least a few times uh, in my previous job but right now basically like at scuba uh almost the pandemic like we're almost at the like edge of the pandemic and that's when i started with scuba and of course we're like a smaller company rather than a big company so it whenever i need to like find some data it almost like takes me a few bounces between people unfortunately starting with kelsey of course and then to a couple of people to actually find the source um like to that data i'm I, I actually just kind of mentioned like unfortunately kelsey because like she is actually getting like a lot of calls or like a lot of uh people uh talking to her like a day almost about the same 
things. But uh, of course, like she has been the basically the biggest source of our customer information in the company so far. So basically for me and Erica, almost like our first in-line person to like ask questions about that is either our CTO or our uh, customer success director in here. With that, I kind of realized that how much data silos are actually just affecting how much time that you're wasting in that part of work versus how much time, whether you're just actually gaining or reaching out to information, especially regarding data in a smaller company. The pandemic is actually, and I mean, it's not the pandemic, it's going to a fully remote company more than anything, Um, but that has actually made it 10 times much, much more easy, actually, for me to break down those silos and have that communication because the company I was at before was, I don't know, 20 people maybe, and we all fit on one floor of an office and it was basically an open floor plan. And I could just walk over to someone's desk if I had a question for them. Even in a larger company, you know, like Tuche was talking about, you could just call someone and that that's actually the same, the same now, but because we are fully remote because we ha- we don't have an office that we, we go into it's so much easier for me to just you know ping someone on slack or send them an email or even just say we used your own confluence for our internal documentation and, and task and ticket tracking so i've been a really big proponent of making sure that everyone has access to confluence so that everyone can see the customer success documents. Everyone can see, you know, our Google Drive, our shared Google Drive with all of our training sessions and recordings so that there's no silo around um, our customer trainings. There's no silo around our um, our product knowledge or our, you know, for engineering, our sprint planning or any of that so that I can go and look that up if I need to, or or if I ping Tuche and Tuche is like, I don't have time to explain this to you because she's a very busy person. She can just send me a link. And I can go access that link and read it about it myself. Having all of that broken down is, I think, mostly because of the pandemic and having a fully remote company, because it wasn't the case before. I mean, part of it is also just everything being in the cloud now instead of you know on-premise or in file folders that someone has to physically access or whatever. It's huge for me. You know, if I get a question, like she was saying, people ask me a lot of questions because I've been at the company for a few years and we have a lot of new folks. So if I'm getting the same question a lot um, from a bunch of different people or from a bunch of new people, then that says to me, oh, I should probably put this in a, you know, an FAQ or a Confluence page. And then I can just pin it in Slack or send them the link instead of having to type out a whole explanation every single time. And that's not, like I said, that's not something that existed before. I saw our internal documentation uh, pre-pandemic and it's a lot more robust now because everything's in one place. And the goal of that is to make sure that everyone has access to the data and information that they need um, so that there's no replication or duplication of information. Tuche isn't documenting something that I'm also documenting, that Erica is also documenting in three different places. There's not necessarily a single source of truth yet. We're getting there. We're working towards it. Everyone always has too many tools that they document like they document things in. But um, the pandemic has really helped open that up, open up the, you know, the access to information across our company at least. And I think I've I've seen that a lot in 
in the companies we work with as well, you know, to the extent that we have communications with not just our primary contacts, but also their other internal contacts. If I'm messaging someone on Teams and they need to incorporate someone else on their, you know, from another department, they can just add them to the chat um, rather than having to schedule a meeting. It makes things a lot easier to, to manage. Thank you for answering that. I know that mentorship is a really common topic that my audience, my data femme audience loves to hear about. What do you feel about having, you know, just mentorship communication in different departments or even different fields? I think it's important to have a mentor who's like not doing exactly what you're doing, just because I think there are a lot of like parallels in different fields and at the end of the day it's all about like problem solving skills right like the best mentor you have may not even work in like the same thing that you do but it is just someone who effectively can communicate with you about how to solve the problems that you face you know if you solve problems one way and I solve them another like that's not to say that you're wrong but that you can't help me one of the people that I very often like turn to for help is not a QA person and actually doesn't even work in tech. They just have very good problem solving skills and like can help me in times of, you know, doubt, just like take a step back and think about how I'm approaching something. And rather than just like, you know, throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. I think that the only time you really quote unquote need a mentor in your field. And that can be a very broadly, like a mentor for me that has worked with customers. You know, I think that's really only necessary if you are trying to have a mentor that will help you in your field and only in your field. But like Erica was talking about, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. You can have a mentor that just is helping make you a better person (laughs) or helping you solve problems better. And that is going to make you better at whatever your job is, even if they can't, you know, maybe they don't have the network to introduce you to the right people, the quote unquote right people, or get you the job that you want to get or any of that. They will help you interview prep if you need interview practicing or They'll help you solve your problems, like finding the right person who can have honest conversations with you about where you're stuck and where you want to grow and then help you get there. That's much more important than whether they are, you know, in the career path that you are currently in or want to be in. That's actually a pretty good point, Kelsey. It's kind of interesting because um, a couple of my friends, actually my my closest friend is also like in the product management field as well. And she is also working with data, but she's working on the other sides of data and she's actually using data to do a growth and strategy outlook for her company. And when I was working um, like in my previous jobs, when I told her that what I wanted to do and how I imagined my life would be happening or like what kind of job would actually just make me happy. The first thing that she kind of like told me, she, she is a product manager as well, but there's actually different types of product managers. What she told me was like, what you're telling me is more like a tech, what a technical product manager would do. Maybe that's what that, those are the roles that you should be 
looking at. So it's kind of interesting because my best friend was almost my um, mentor at that point who helped me like thinking about being more focused and it's basically like an aha moment for you. Like she almost solved my problem. And she also gave me like a career advice. And that's like one of the best things that happened to me, to be honest. I do love what Erica said about sometimes the people who can give you the best opinions are totally removed and not even in tech. Um, And it's really a case by case basis. What projects or situations, you can name one, you can name more than one if you want, have been most memorable in terms of teaching you about communication? So there was one situation when I first started um and there was no like QA department so there was really no like precedent for like what the QA department does and how they interact and so I approached my boss and I said hey um do you think it would be beneficial for us to have like a team meeting and I think in my mind the obvious answer was yes right you know and he said well, you know, let me think about it. Let me talk to some other people. Um, and, that, and then you came back and said, no, I don't think we need to have a meeting, um, a regular like standing meeting. And um, so a week went by and I realized that the the issue is that I phrased this like a question rather than saying like, this is a thing that I want. Even if you think the answer is obvious, it can be better to just say what you want from someone rather than assuming that they know that you are asking for this. I have been seeing this just very prominent problem that was just coming from the customer and it was coming from different departments as well. We're like getting tickets and um, they are the, this customer, actually two of these customers were spending like technical supports time, advanced technical supports time, asking questions to the engineering team and kind of like bringing us very angry comments to like the marketing team as well. And at one time, I kind of collected all this data and brought it like almost in front of the senior directors. They were aware of the problem, but they were not aware such that we were just getting data from all over the place. And at their level, since they're not really aware of that, and they are the people who are uh, just confirming the roadmap, they haven't realized how big of a situation it was before. so basically that project uh this like door knocking almost knocking that door down uh brought me to lead a project on where i was because i made that problem visible at that at that time and it just didn't really take one try to do that like i brought it up as like an anecdotal thing to one of the managers but he was just saying that oh they're complaining all the time but when you gather all of that data together and when you just paint that picture, it kind of becomes apparent that it is of a bigger problem than it is. So I guess there's like two lessons in here. One of them is that like definitely <laughs> knock that door down. And the second is to knock that door, you need to have supportive data. So do your homework well if you're going to knock that door down. A mentor that I had for a time here, one of the people that I used to work for, I believe contributed a lot to my growth here at the company. And one of the things that he taught me was to be honest um, and also to not apologize. I think it's something that especially women 
in tech, but in any role, uh, we do a lot of apologizing and we need to stop. He would keep reminding me of that. Um, and the more I started to include that in my phrasing uh, and in the wording of whatever I was telling someone or asking someone for, you know, like Erica was saying, framing it as this is a thing that I need, not a, what do you think about this? Or if it's okay, can we do this? Um, phrasing it instead as, you know, I need this to be successful. And if you are not going to provide this for me, then I will need to find it elsewhere, for example, or to say, this is a thing we need full stop. Um, I actually have post-its on my monitor, my second monitor um, to remind me, you know, it's not, you're not sorry. There's no just, don't stop saying just stop hedging your bets with saying, oh, can I just get this? Or is it okay if I just do this? Stop apologizing and say, thank you for your patience instead of sorry for the wait. And it was something that I hadn't really thought about a lot until um, this person sort of put me on that path. But the more I've implemented it, the more successful I've been in both communicating with my peers and communicating with other leadership. And it's gotten me really far. I love that you bring that up because my uncle and I have this like understanding that a few years ago we decided to say thank you instead of sorry for everything. So every yes. time, and, and sometimes, you know, it's better than others, obviously, <laughs> but with professional stuff, it's always, always, there's an option to say, to lead with gratitude instead of assuming that you're in the wrong. And it's just so funny that you um, brought that up because that's like literally something that I think about every day. I actually, I have a shirt that I got uh, on the internet because everything's from the internet these days uh, that says, seize the day with the unearned confidence of a mediocre white man. Um, and I don't wear it at work uh, for obvious reasons, but it does help me remember that there are a lot of people out there that will undervalue you if you let them. They'll lowball you, they'll talk over you, they will treat you poorly or treat you in a way that isn't beneficial to you in your career path and your personal growth. And the biggest thing that I've learned is to take up space in work, in life, um, take up space and don't apologize for it. If you know you're right, say what you need to say and don't say, does that make sense? Or I don't know if this is true, but, or correct me if I'm wrong, but if you know you're right, then you're right. Say the thing you know. If you're the most knowledgeable person in the room, then be the most knowledgeable person in the room. Be nice about it, but, but know, know your worth. You're so right about that. Totally plus one. If I would actually talk in the specifics of data, I would say, get your hands dirty. Um, I don't know if, I, I'm not sure if anyone over here knows, but there's a, there's a meme that was um, kind of going around all the time. It's like a jump in Lady Gaga in one of the like Super Bowls. Literally, that is the act that you should be doing in the data. Just get lost in it and look at it and try to look at the different aspects of it. Because as much as you get lost, you're 
gonna learn more and you're gonna try to like swim to the surface and you're gonna learn much more when you're trying to swim to the surface don't be scared of like starting I uh, agree with everything that Tuche and Kelsey said. The only thing I would add is to anyone who's like curious about like getting in tech or data science, give yourself space. Like you don't have to end up in one role. You don't have to do one thing to be either a data scientist or to be involved in tech. There's a lot of data that is collected and there's a lot of data that isn't collected. There's been a lot of like, research lately onto some of the ways in which we distribute data and ad delivery and targeting people based on things that we think that they want to see. And it's been shown that a lot of these like data-based algorithms are like very biased, very sexist, very racist. So to anyone who's like wanting to be a data scientist, I think obviously look at the data you're collecting. But then ask yourself, like, what data isn't being collected? And, you know, if you want to be a data scientist, there's a space for you to be a data scientist and there's a space to, for you to be a data scientist um, in ways that are not, that are, like, against the grain. So, like, just give yourself that space to, like, be true to yourself. Wow. Well, what a perfect note to end on. All of you said some extremely epic things. To my listeners, I know you're going to have comments and reactions to this episode. So as you know, don't be a stranger on Twitter. I tweet, therefore I am, at Data. That's my handle. And the ladies are on LinkedIn. I've included their LinkedIn profiles in the show notes in case you want to reach out connect they're obviously very knowledgeable about career development as well as data and in general just excellent people to know as you can imagine by how excellent they were as guests and speaking of guests if you know anyone who is from an underrepresented group in tech, take that to mean whatever you will, and would like to promote them as a guest, you can always feel free to reach out to me at dikayo at dikayodata.com. I'm also just very visible on social media. Also, let it be known that I am planning on incorporating some of my recently acquired Web3 passion into the content of this podcast. And I am looking not only for guests who can speak to data and Web3, but sponsors, not only Web3 sponsors, you can be a Web2 company who's interested in learning about Web3, We'd love for you to advertise any hiring opportunities, any events, any notable product releases on upcoming episodes of Data Femme, which will be more of the incredible content you heard just now. If you think you or your company might be interested in advertising with Data Femme, I'm happy to talk to you again at Dikayo at dikayodata.com. But until then, I will bid you adieu. We have some wonderful content coming up for you, not just on Data Femme, but in the newsletter, which you can sign up for at dikayodata.com. I'm wishing you a brilliant start to your fall season. 